Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live is Alan Zweibel. He has written another book called Bunny Bunny about his work and life with Gilda Radner. He's also worked on a number of of, projects. television programs, including Saturday Night Live, where he was a writer for many years. He collaborated with Billy Crystal on his one-man Broadway show, 700 Sundays. And he has also worked with Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And you'll find out why when you hear him talk with us. His new book is called The Other Shulman, (laughs) the idea coming in part from, you know, if somebody loses so much weight, it looks like there must be another one of them somewhere else in the world. And the story of, uh, of this is uh, quite remarkable. Will you please welcome Alan Zweibel to West Coast Live. How do you do? Uh, how much did you weigh at one time, when, at, at your most? Oh, 240-something. Yeah. yeah, and I had always figured that... Um, I had been gaining and losing the same 35 pounds since my bar mitzvah, and that if you had taken all those 35-pound parcels and put them together, I lost a complete person. And, and um, it was a person I didn't want to be. That's why I try to lose him at the right, gym and right. cover him with big sweaters and stuff. And I had always wondered what it would be like if I ran into that person. What, what if I came upon him? What was his life like? Was he different than me? Was he doing better than me? And I sort of filed that notion, thinking, gee, that would make a good short story maybe for the New Yorker. And um, then, uh, this is an incredibly autobiographical novel. Um, I, I, I saw a sign. Uh, it said, you too can complete a marathon. And it was a poster that was in Ben and Jerry's down in LA, okay? <laughs> And I'm going, wow, that's sort of cool. You know, you, you can eat. What were you doing in the Ben and Jerry's? Oh, you know. Um, <laughs> research. Research, yeah. research. Um, and so I'm going, all right. And I, was, I had had a couple of movies that didn't do well and um, a, a TV show that didn't do well. And I was, you were doing calorie therapy. Uh, that's exactly what it was. I was snorting uh, Cherry Garcia at the time. And, and so I was I'm going, well, you know, I, I was in a rut, you know. And the kids started leaving the house. They're getting older, going to college, you know. And um, my marriage was sort of like flatlining just a little. I was just a, I needed something different. So I went, all right, I need a goal in my life, just some structure, just get out of the house. I went, okay, let's try to run a marathon. So I joined a running group in L.A., and um, every Sunday we got together and I trained for a marathon and it was to raise money for AIDS. And um, the f- they always attached themselves to another marathon every year, a legitimate one. So the first one was in uh, 2000 in Chicago and I, I, I ran the Chicago marathon. And the next year they attached themselves to the Honolulu one and I was gonna go to Honolulu, but then 9-11 happened. And uh, I'm from New York and I went, God, I, I gotta get home. I got to go back to my city. And so I entered the New York City Marathon. And I was only five weeks after 9-11. And it was the most remarkable experience in the world. You, marathon starts in Staten Island. And you run across the, uh, the Verrazano Bridge. And um, I'm in Brooklyn now. you know, And I realized I'm running through my life. I had been born in Brooklyn. My father always worked in Manhattan. The Mets were in Queens. And the Yankees were in the Bronx. 
And I started having all these flashbacks and I started running through my life and I'm going, all right, why don't I marry these two ideas together? So I, I invented a guy named Shulman who owns a stationery store that nobody goes to anymore. <laughs> All right, and his marriage is flatlining. The kids are leaving the house, and uh, it was a great leap of imagination. Yes, you know, this was hardly a stretch for me because, um, <laughs> with the exception of the stationery store, it's me totally. It's it, this is no you know, so. Um, uh, and I said, all right, why don't I marry the two ideas together? So I had a guy showman who's in this uh, in in this situation that I was in. And I had him um, run a marathon and, um, and actually running through his life, taking inventory of the people he met and the uh, experiences he had, the things that made him him. And um, it was, uh, and it's a very clever book because, um, <laughs> because it, it takes place while he's running the marathon. So there's, um, each chapter is a mile. So there's 26.2 chapters in the book, which I think is very in inventive and, and um, and just think, it comes out of some guy ran, uh, you know, to deliver news of, of, a, of a military victory. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's the distance. And that's, that led directly to the number of chapters in your book. Absolutely. So I have that Greek guy to thank. The yeah. guy, I can't thank him because he died at the end of his right. marathon. Right. Yeah. Which I thought I was going to do at the end of mine, by the way. And, um, Did you run past the place where you, you first started doing stand-up comedy? I, I ran past uh, Catch a Rising Star, which is where I did stand-up comedy for, and that's where Lauren Michaels discovered me and uh, gave me a job on this new, sh new show that he had, uh, he was thinking about at the time, called Saturday Night Live. I ran past everything in my life, so I did it with this guy, but I also gave him this doppelganger. Somewhere during the course of the novel, there's another showman who's more type A personality than him, who's opening up a stationary store but it's like staples, like four doors down from him, okay? And ultimately makes a play for Shulman's wife. Uh, a wife. And um, in mile six, uh, 26.2, it all comes to a head, and we get the feeling that Shulman has to beat the doppelganger who, who appears during the marathon. And if he does, if he beats him, uh, we will have gotten a feeling that uh, he finally met and confronted his demons and, and overcame him. And, um, you know, that's basically what the book is. And... Uh, I, uh, it's so autobiographical, you know, I was running and running. When I was trudging through the streets of Brooklyn, okay, which is just over the, uh, the Verrazano Bridge, I'm about four miles into this race, when word came back that the winner <laughs> had not only crossed the finish line, but was already on a plane back to Kenya. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so I use the word run very, very, very guardedly here, you know. That's my James Fry uh, thing, okay? So, but what about the endorphin rush? You know something, those endorphins, if I knew about them in college, I would have saved a fortune on drugs, okay? <laughs> if, if I knew back then, all you had to do was get a little shorts and a little t-shirt, just run around, and you get this amazing high. It's like, um, it's an incredible thing, and I, and I never ran in my life. I, I just didn't find it necessary to do it. And, um, and I couldn't stand people who ran, because all they spoke about was running. That's all they, they were bored the hell out of me. But didn't, you, didn't you run for a while around Central Park? I ran around, yeah, but, you know, I'd stop, I'd walk, I'd go to the zoo, <laughs> I'd buy popcorn. <laughs> so, once again, the word run, you know, uh, there should be another, you know, listing in the dictionary for the way I saw, I, I handled it. And, um, but I understood 
once I started getting into running, why people, it, it is an addiction. It, you, you, it, it is, you just feel like you've got to move. You've got to. Have you, have you run yet today? No, no. Um, I, have you run this week? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> no. You, you quit periodically. I, I quit for, uh, for years at a time. And um, <laughs> no, I, I didn't run the marathon this year because I was promoting this book. And I didn't run it last year because I was writing that book. So I'm trying to think desperately of finding another book to write so I don't have to do it next year. <laughs> if anyone has an idea, just come on. I, 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 I don't want to have to do that again, you know. When, when, you, uh, when you collaborate with, with comedians, uh, and, and you write, I mean, early in your career you worked a lot with Gilda Radner, uh, and uh, she asked you to write material for her uh, to use in, uh, in Saturday Night Live. Right. You, you've collaborated with Billy Crystal, with Larry David. I mean, how do, how do funny people collaborate? I mean, is there a one-upsmanship that goes on? Is there a genuine teamsmanship to like work on the, on That's the great, a great joke? question. It's it's. It's like any social relationship where two people get along and you, everyone has people in their lives who make them laugh and you want to be with them. And it's, uh, it's not so much one-upsmanship. There's a little bit of that, but it, it's more of a synergy where one and one equals three and, and, and you, you build on each other. With Gilda and I, it was... Um, it got vicious at times. It, it, it got. We had created a character called Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, and uh, it was. She a, was the, the newscaster. The newscaster, yeah, and, um, and and I have this little piece of toilet paper that was stuck to Barbara Walters. Well, that's exactly what would happen. We would go out to dinner, she and I, and I go, all right, what's in the news? Uh, oh, uh, there's something called the Great American Smokeout. Okay, everybody is not supposed to uh, smoke anymore. Okay, fine. That's that's our news item. Um, what wh what do you want to do in terms of it? Okay, let's say you uh, stop smoking and you gained weight. Oh well, I joined the gym. Okay, so we'll write about going to a gym. Okay, um, what celebrity do you want to see in the gym? Oh, Dr. Joyce Brothers. What disgusting, compromising position do you want to see the celebrity in? Well, she's got a sweat ball hanging from the uh, from her nose in in a, in a sauna. Okay, then we would she would just talk, okay, and I would write down all these notes, okay, over on a legal pad over dinner. Then I would go back to the office. This would be on a Friday night, and the show was the next night, Saturday night, obviously, right? She'd go to Studio Fifty Four. She'd go out to the world, and I'm over there huddled like a rabbi over a Torah, <laughs> trying, to, trying to make sweat balls come out of uh, Joy's brother's nose, you know, in a sauna. Gilda would come in the morning, fresh as a daisy, having a good night's sleep, and I'm still there, okay? And I'd go to her dressing room, and I'd give her, let's say, 11 pages of this thing we wanted to do on TV that night. She'd take out a red pen, and like a school marm, just start Xing out and crossing and, and, and editing me. And I'd be really pissed off. And then I take it and I go up to my office and I look at her notes and I go, oh God, she's right. She's, she's making it better. Oh yeah? Well, I'll show her. So then I took a green pencil and I went over her red, okay? And it just kept on going like this, back and forth, back and forth. And by the time we went on the air, we were not talking to each other. <laughs> and this happened every week? Every week. Was, Dinner and then not speaking to each it, other. It was a real pleasure, yeah. <laughs> with Billy, uh, uh, writing uh, 700 Sundays with him was totally uh, different. It was such a personal thing with him that um, it was a very, very unusual role that I had in that I was writing... For, 
for people that I had never met, his family, and uh, I had never met any of these aunts and uncles and grandparents, but I, and so I had a hook into them, I had a hook into Billy's affection for them. At the same time, they were just like my family. You know, we even say in the show, you know, we all have the, the same families, you know, just look in the album, we all have the same five relatives, they just jump from album to album, you know? <laughs> so I felt I was like writing for my, the characters in my family, and, um, but what I would have to do is not only write for Billy's family and, and for what he was going to say about them and put words in those characters' mouths. My role was a very difficult one, but it, was as, it couldn't be as vicious as it was with Gilda, where it was a, a made-up thing and, uh, you know, and we just came at it. I had, I had to be very respectful of his family, so I had to be the guy who had to somehow also be psychiatrist and say, all right, when your dad died, um, after you left, after you had a fight with him and he went to the bowling alley and he never came back, you as a 15-year-old, do you think you did it? Do you think you think you caused it? And I said, you don't have to answer me right now, but we're going to have to deal with that. You tell me when we're ready to talk about that in the piece. So they, they had, so it was more kid gloves because you know it, it is something so, you know, um, so personal. So you know, the, all collaborations are different. Larry David and I are just—we've been friends for 30 years, and uh, whatever you, a lot of the things you see in that show are just things that uh, that either happened to the two of us or. Um, uh, wish happened to the two of us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the book is is called the the other Schulman. Uh, is there a uh, uh, what is what is your, uh, uh, your your kids are grown? Have any of them gone into the the comedy business? They're really funny kids. Um, my my son is married. Uh, he's not in the comedy business. Uh, he's twenty four. He has his own company back east. Um, my two daughters are leaning towards writing, and you know we, we're just whatever you want. We're behind you, you know. What, what were Thanksgiving dinners like around your house? Well, you know, um, we were out in. With Thanksgiving dinners were very, very interesting because we were in L.A. and we, so we would have Thanksgiving dinners with our friends. So we would have Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks at our Thanksgiving dinners, you know, and and Satyrs also. You haven't heard anything until you hear Mel Brooks answer the four questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He answers questions that weren't even asked. He just keeps going, wow, I didn't know that. You know? So, um, you know, it was, it's, it was fun in, in that the characters, I had created a show called It's Gary Shandling Show a number of years ago. So these was regular people who were in and out of the house, you know. So it was, um, there was always a, uh, it was, it's a way of looking at life, you know what I mean? So I'm happy that my kids have that, you know. So, I mean, did people try to top one another with their jokes around the Thanksgiving table? To a certain degree, but also sometimes, it, you know, comedians are um, a sad lot, you know what I mean? <laughs> By and large, we're all dented cans, <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> so I've, I've, I've talked with Richard Lewis, and he's had in that very chair there. Oh, uh, you know, there's some... A, there's a dented can. Oh, I think that he's a, he's a dented barrel. I mean, I, 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 and he's a good friend of mine, but he'll be the first to admit that, um, wow, uh, you know, it's... Um, the comics and comedi comedy writers um, uh, seek each other out because they're kindred spirits, and at the same time, I, I think, yeah, you, uh, you know, I think that the perception is that it's always fun in games and trying to top each other. I think they seek each other out also just to be quiet, you know, and just to somehow, uh, you know, just let their hair down just a little bit and just go, huh, <laughs> you know, I've had a rough childhood. The uh <laughs> 
the the Gary, uh, I, I, the, there was the uh, the Larry Sanders show also that Gary Shandling was in. I don't know. I don't think you were involved. No, in I, no he, he, um, I did the one he had before. Well, the one before that. But but nevertheless, in there, what you see is uh, somebody who has to go out on stage, be funny in public. There's an enormous amount of pressure. But but within, you know, these profound insecurities and neuroses that that uh, you have to. <laughs> well, uh, well, look. Let's analyze this, okay? <laughs> you wake up in the morning, all right, and you prepare all day to go on stage in front of a thousand, five hundred, however, strangers. Make them laugh, then go back to your hotel room, go over every joke and go, did they like me? You think I was funny? You think it was funny? And they get their fill for maybe 10 minutes and they go to sleep and then they do the same thing tomorrow night. And it's a vicious, there's like a hole that has to be filled, which sometimes is never filled, you know? So it is, um, you know, all the cliches, you know, I'm not saying everyone, I'm not making a blanket statement by any, uh, well, I am, but, um, <laughs> But you know, there's a, there's there's a little bit of a please accept me, please like me thing there. You know, it's the heavy kid in school who becomes a class clown, you know, to get because he's not a good athlete or this and that. It's like recognize me, like me. Yeah. Well, then I also think that the, the the going on stage and getting the laugh there becomes uh, an endorphin rush that comes from the laugh. The laugh you got to keep getting the laugh and absolutely, it's it's it, it's so you get so charged, you know, and it just. I don't, whatever the physics of it is, and, and, and the chemistry, and, and, and uh, the biology, and, and the botany, and the <laughs> zoology, uh, uh, and all the ease of it. Um, yeah, it feeds on itself, and, and it becomes something that, um, you, you, it, it, is, it is the endorphin rush. I gotta get out there, and I gotta hear laughs. Yeah. And, uh, but marathon running is a good alternative, then. Marathon running is real good, because you can think about stuff. And for me, um, it was great, uh, chance for me to listen to music because I, I, I couldn't figure out what to think about. You gotta understand, I, 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 the, the best guys in the world run the marathon a little bit over two hours, okay? It takes me the same amount of time to run a marathon that it would take you to get on a plane now, <laughs> fly to New York, get off the plane, get your luggage, <laughs> maybe have a sandwich before the car comes to pick you up, okay? So I would listen to music, and um, I, I would have all these uh, flashbacks. I listened primarily to um, Simon and Garfunkel a lot. You know, I listened to a lot of Guilty Pleasures, top 40 songs that I would be quite dead listening to, you know, but they were in earphones, so who knew? You know, and classical music and, and great comedy routines like Woody Allen doing uh, The Moose and Monty Python singing the Lumberjack song and, and, and Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks doing 2,000-Year-Old Man. But Simon and Garfunkel, uh, I used to listen to a lot growing up on Long Island uh, in, in the 60s and, and 70s. They were, you know, uh, the essence of uh, the generation. As a matter of fact, I have a, an anecdote in there which happened to me. Uh, I, I was in college, and I was failing this creative writing class, failing miserably. And this was during Vietnam years. So I've, if I failed, I was going to get kicked out of school and get booted to the Mekong Delta, you know. And so um, as a last journal entry to try to save my butt, Okay, and I had this, I handed in the lyrics to the boxer, okay. <laughs> now I had this professor, her name was Nora Rent. She was 
well, I don't know how old she was, but she looked like she slept with a couple of Elizabethans, okay? She was <laughs> old, okay? And I figured she'll never, this whole crone would never notice these lyrics, right? So I hand it in, and we get it back on Monday, and she writes excellent on the thing. Not only that, she was so impressed by this newfound poet in her midst who was talking about the gritty streets of life in New York. She wanted me to come up and read the lyrics to the class. <laughs> now you understand, these were the liner notes to the biggest selling album of the year. So I look at the clock, you know, look at the time, figuring, you know, gee, maybe I can run out the clock over here. And I go, no, there's still 40 minutes left in the period. And I come up there, and I took a look over at her one last time, and um, I was disappointed to see that she was still alive. And, and, and I started, you know, I am just the poor boy, though my story seldom told. I've squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. <laughs> All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I now look up over the paper, the page that I'm reading, and everyone in the class, their jaws, their jaws dropped, okay? And they're looking at each other, and she's beaming like she found somebody, okay? And she tells me to continue. So I go, when I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station, running scared. Laying low, seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. And that's when it happened. That's when the entire class got fed up with this nonsense and started singing, lie, la, lie. Lie, la, lie, lie, lie. The whole class is singing like that. And I got nervous. I thought I was busted, okay? I sort of sting in my stomach, and finally she started nodding, and, and, and what was either rhythmic movements to this music or epilepsy, okay? And she finally said, um, this really shocked me. She looked at the class, she goes, it's catchy, isn't it? And, 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 and I, I got away with this thing, so I put that in the book, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the other Schulman. They were the other Schulman doing that. No, it was you. No. Took over. Took over. Took over. <laughs> Doppelganger, you're the darker side. Um, how do you... You just point it over there. We're on radio. It was a gesture. Oh, I see. It was a, uh, I was trying to, I, I had a thought that I was over there that was, I was trying to retrieve and get it back oh, before I got too far right. away. I think it's out and the I door. I couldn't yeah. see it okay. anymore, yeah. Probably where it's gone. How do you, how do you uh, craft a, a joke or a little story when you, when you work with it? How do you, uh, I mean, clearly you've got to have a punchline, but there's a rhythm and there's also a way that you, you build material in and you, you know, for instance, I was listening, you, you get on the, you know, you get on the plane, and then you wait for your luggage, and then there's a beat. And then you might have a sandwich, and uh, you know, so on. It helps to be Jewish, by the way. Um, it, 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 it doesn't really hurt, you know what I mean? There's something that the tribe has some sort of DNA thing going on there, which makes you talk like that, you know? Um, it, it, there, there is a comedic rhythm, and, and, but what I used to do, this was a long, long time ago, 
I used to, this was when I first started doing this uh, in the early 70s out of college, I would wake up in, uh, let's say, on Monday morning, and I'd say, okay, this week the, um, the topic will be buying a car, right? On Monday, I would write a monologue, how to buy a car, um, as if Jack Benny had delivered it. And on Tuesday, Joan Rivers. I, I, each day, a different person. By the end of the week, I had the same subject told five different ways in five different voices. It's a way that I made up to train my ear so that if I, would, I wanted to write scripts someday, so all the characters don't sound alike. And to answer your question about crafting a joke, I used, when I used to write for comedians, if you wrote for Rodney Dangerfield, which I did, it was very, very easy because he had a persona. He had that thing, I don't get no respect. So when I wrote for him, I don't get no respect. Even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She liked me as a friend, okay? <laughs> that was easy, okay? You know? Or, uh, my whole family never got any respect, you know? I had him say, uh, during the Civil War, I had an uncle who fought for the West. You know what I mean? So, that was easy. But pr when I used to write for these stand-up opening acts who were like these interchangeable comics, okay, with no defined personalities, the joke had to work on its own, no matter who said it, because there was no nuance. There wasn't that familiarity with the character. I had, um, so I was 22 years old. I started writing jokes for all these comedians in the Catskill Mountains. Every Morty, Mickey, Freddie, and Dickie that ever lived, <laughs> I, I wrote for. And I'm 21 years old, and they're saying to me, you know. You're getting a few bucks a joke. Seven dollars a joke. Well, you want to know something? <laughs> yes and no, because a lot of them wouldn't pay me unless it got a laugh. <laughs> so I'd get in my parents' car. We lived on Long Island. I moved back in with my parents after college. I'd go up to Catskill Mountains to the Concord Hotel, one of those places up there. I'd sit in the back, listen to the comedian do my jokes, and he'd come off the stage. And he'd go, you know, boy, that, that, that joke about the sperm bank really didn't work. And I'd go, gee, I heard laughs. And then we would bargain. <laughs> and he'd give me $4, okay? <laughs> you know, sperm banks I had to write. Joke, jokes, you know, back then, 21-year-old uh, kid writing about sperm banks. This is, uh, I had said something like... Um, Mar there's, a lot, there's a live radio show here. Oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. The... Um, <laughs> They have a thing now called sperm banks, I uh, said, which were just like ordinary banks, except here, after you make a deposit, you, you lose interest, you know? <laughs> I thought for $7, that, that was nice. Yeah, you got a little up here. See? That's right. We got a rim shot guy here, too. Um, well, as long as we're on the subject of um, sperm banks, I had uh, foresaw, this was a long time ago, I was uh, sort of prophetic when I looked into the future, because I said, you know, they're starting to, to freeze sperm now, which was, um, uh, I, I, I foresaw as being a problem, you know, because it's hard enough telling a kid that he's adopted, how do you tell him he's defrosted, you know? So I, I looked into that. And then I, started, then I started getting $10 a joke and $12 a joke. I peaked at $18. I got high for you Jewish people out there. I had written a joke back then about that the coming out with a new porno movie where the whole cast were Hasidic Jews, <laughs> which was unusual, especially the orgy scene, because the men are on one side of the room and the uh, <laughs> women were on the other. <laughs> uh, 
I took... <laughs> but I had taken all the jokes that these comedians wouldn't buy from me because their, their audience was 50 and I was 21. And I made it into a stand-up back for myself. And I went to a couple of clubs in New York at the time, Catch a Rising Star, another one called The Improvisation. And um, Lorne Michaels came in one night and uh, he saw me uh, perform. I, I was delivering my jokes, hoping that somebody like Lorne Michaels would walk in. And I, um, I, uh, he said he wanted to see more material. So I went home and I typed up what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes. <laughs> 11, it was up for two days straight, okay? My parents' kitchen table typing. And two days later, I had to go back to the city to have my meeting with Lauren. I had a book this thick now with 1,100 jokes. And I remember, I, first thing I did was I, I, I showered. I thought that was an excellent idea after <laughs> two days of typing. And then I tried to figure out what to wear for my um, interview with Lauren, and I couldn't figure it out. I'm going, gee, young, hip show, young, hip producer. Okay, I'll dress young, I'll dress hip. I put on my father's maroon polyester leisure suit. <laughs> I looked like a big blood clot, okay? <laughs> I got on the Long Island Railroad, I went to the city, to the... To, uh, the Plaza Hotel, where Lorne was staying, and my meeting was like at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be late. I was so nervous. I got there at 7 in the morning, okay? <laughs> and I called Billy Crystal, who is a friend of mine who we'd met at the clubs, and Billy had been talking to Lorne about the possibility... Hello. ...of, of he, Billy... Okay, I'll, I'll make this fast. If he, Billy... Ignore it. Okay. I do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Lorne and Billy had been talking about the possibility of Billy being one of the original not ready for primetime plays. It didn't work out, but he spent time with Lorne, so I said to, to him, I said, tell me something about this guy, you know, because I'm going for an interview. He said, well, he used to write for Woody Allen. He's produced Monty Python specials. Albert Brooks is going to have sh small short films on this show. Oh, and he hates mimes. Lorne hates mimes. Okay, thanks, Billy. Now, you got to understand, I was so nervous, and I had been working to supplement my living of $7 a joke. I was working in a delicatessen in Queens, New York. You name it, I sliced it for about two years, okay? So this was, I was nervous. This would be maybe a way out of my parents' house and a way to have my dream of being a TV comedy writer. I go up to Lauren's suite, and sitting on the edge of the bed, he's on a chair facing me, and I give him this <laughs> phone book of 1,100 jokes. And he opens it, and he reads the first joke, and he goes, uh-huh. And he closes the book. It's good. How much money do you need to live on? I said, well, making $2.75 an hour at the deli, match it. <laughs> So he said, well, tell me a little bit more about yourself, which I took to mean before he you know, dished out this kind of cash, he wanted to see what he was buying, you know? I said, well, Woody Allen's my idol. Love Monty Python. Maybe my career can go like Albert Brooks's, you know, small films and real big ones. I said, well, if there's one freaking mime on this show, I am out of here. <laughs> he gave me a job, you know? <laughs> And you talk about jokes, the joke, the one joke that he read and, and got me the, the job on the show we used in the very, very first weekend update ever, I had written a joke. Once again, it didn't need any personality. It wasn't specific. It was a generic joke that I could show you how long ago this was. 
uh, by the reference points in it, I had written a joke about um, saying that the post office was about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a 10 cent stamp. You want to lick it, it's a quarter. <laughs> and that made it on the air? That made it on the air. Yeah. It's a philatelist joke, right? I think it's it is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Benjamin Franklin used to do jokes like that when he was with the magnifying glass. Alan Zweibel, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, this was fun. Thank you very much. The book is called The Other Shulman, a novel published by Villard Press. Also wrote by the This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.